Welcome to Nightlife, the podcast. Last week at this time, we went on an adventure into the swashbuckling world of rum. This week, we are on a journey to chilly Eastern Europe to enjoy a drink that's best served neat with bread, if you're Russian, maybe with pickles, maybe infused with spices and fruits, or mixed into a Moscow mule. I am talking about vodka, a drink that's very much synonymous with Russia. Now, to take us on this journey, I am joined by Jennifer Yeremeyeva, who is an American historian, food writer and former columnist for the Moscow Times. She's written extensively on vodka and she's uh, joining us now from the US. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to Nightline. Hello, Suzanne. (laughs) Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Are you a big vodka fan yourself? I actually am not a big vodka fan as it's taken in Russia sort of neat, but I do enjoy it in a cocktail. And which is your favourite? Um, I do think I like the Moscow Mule, but I've actually invented a few cocktails, which maybe we can get into later. Oh, absolutely. Because um, <laughs> right. uh, I know it's, it's summer where you are. It's it's um, sort of mud season where I am, but um, I, I've invented a few that are sort of for the the height of summer with lots of fresh herbs and, and spices and sort of sparkly things to, to give it a real kick. Excellent. All right. Don't let us finish this conversation, Jennifer, without talking about, <laughs> about some of those. Okay, good. Um, you are in the US now. You lived in Russia for many years. How important to everyday life is vodka in Russia? You, you do get the feeling it's served at every dinner table, but is, is that just a, a very misguided idea? I think that's a bit of a stereotype. Um, you know, in the past two decades, Russians have paid a lot more attention to their health. And in fact, beer overtook vodka as the sort of the national tipple. Um, so I wouldn't say that there's a bottle of vodka on every dinner table every day, but certainly it is um, the beverage of choice. It's the it's the national spirit, if it's not the national drink. Um, and it is as important in life as it is in death. Um, during funerals, vodka is brought to the graveside um, and is plays a big part in the wake at home. And for 40 days... After a loved one dies, you keep a glass of vodka uh, sort of on a windowsill or something because the idea is that their soul is still roaming uh, the earth and they might want to drink. And often you put a, a slice of black bread on top and you do that for 40 days. And then after 40 days, the soul uh, leaves the earth. And so you can put the vodka away. Um, but there's also a tradition of bringing food and and wine and, and vodka to the graveside once a year to sort of commemorate uh, a lost loved one. So as in life, as in death, um, vodka is, is there. So that idea of vodka being really tied up with the national identity and with, with tradition, that is very, very real and very strong. That is. And I would say that's also the case in in a few of the satellite um, countries of Russia, um, such as, well, it's as important um, in the Baltic states, for example, uh, in Poland uh, and in Ukraine. Yeah, my Swedish friends always refer to that part of the world as the Northern Liquor Belt. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's true. And of course, the Swedes, um, you know, and, and the all of the uh, Scandinavian countries, they also have a version of vodka. Um, and in Iceland, for example, Aquavit uh, is kind of the same idea. Oh, is it? I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, uh-huh. here's an interesting bit of trivia. I understand Russians aren't fans of reusable corks or, or what, screw top bottles or well, why why go to the trouble of having a cork or a screw top bottle if you're going to open a bottle of vodka, you're going to finish it. So, um, most most um, Russian made uh, bottles of vodka will have just a plastic cork that you open and throw away. Okay. Now it is said vodka loses some of its purity once it's open, so I guess that's part of the idea why Russians have decided it is not advised to just keep a half open bottle in the cupboard anyway. <laughs> Well, it also evaporates. Um, it's true that it, it will lose some of its purity. Um, that's why a lot of people will keep it in the fridge also to keep it ready to go um, because it's best served absolutely cold. Um, but it also evaporates. Um, and so you wouldn't want to leave it around. Um, if I if we go back to that glass on the windowsill during the 40 days after someone dies, of course, what happens is that the, the spirit evaporates. Um, but I think that the idea is it's being consumed somehow by the soul. Now, what does vodka actually mean in Russian? Okay, so um, the word for water uh, in Russian is vada. And so if you uh, want to make something diminutive, you add an ending that usually is ka or uh, inka. So vodka would be little water. And you can go even, yeah, that's what it means. And you can go even further. Um, So I'm, I'm married to a Russian, so he would... Refer if he wanted, like a, he'll say, "I just will have a little vodka," um, which would be a very small little water. Yeah. And sometimes it used to be called bread wine as well. Why would that be? Well, of course, it's distilled from um, from rye, which is the major grain in that part of the world. Um, but also, the the first um, sort of alcoholic drinks long before vodka, uh, certainly before wine was something called kvass, which actually I would say probably is the national drink of Russia. And kvass is simply made from uh, fermented bread. Uh, You take stale bread and you mix it with water and the yeast in the bread creates sort of a foamy, almost loamy kind of um, alcohol that's very refreshing. It's less alcoholic than beer, um, but that was the original bread wine. Um, and so uh, I think when you're using the same grain to produce the uh, the spirit in vodka, that's probably why. Now, Jennifer, I had thought potatoes had something to do with vodka. Is that not so? Well, they do. Um, and the Russians would, if the Russians were here, they would say um, that that's vastly inferior vodka. Um, vodka should be made from grain. Um, the Poles do make it uh, from potato and it's not as pure and it has kind of a, a taste and vodka should actually not taste of anything. It should be just like a cold cloud surrounding you. Um, but uh, yes, you can make vodka from potatoes. And of course, there are um, there's a strong and long tradition in Eastern Europe of people distilling uh, spirit at home, particularly to avoid uh, government tax and on the occasions that um, alcohol has been prohibited, which are not extensive but um have there there have been instances um when the government has sort of cracked down and so people would take to um distilling at home in small batches and so potatoes are are cheap and and easy to uh to use and so you do get something like that which is called in russian samagon which is uh, distilling it yourself 
Uh, Jennifer Yeramova is with us, an American historian, food writer and former columnist for the Moscow Times. She is telling us the story of vodka here on Nightlife tonight. Now, there is a little bit of contestation, isn't there, Jennifer, about which country can actually lay claim to inventing vodka? That's right. And I don't think we're going to settle it tonight, Susan, <laughs> Suzanne. Um, uh, because the, the, the polls certainly were distilling, as, as we just mentioned, um, grain and potato liquors. And it was the Poles who first brought um, something like vodka to uh, Russia. Uh, they were some Genoese merchants were on their way uh, to Lithuania, which uh, was then part of Poland in the Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth. And they brought um, something that I think is more close to grappa, really, which they called aqua vitae, or the water of life in Latin. Um, the Russians didn't think much, very much of it. It was way too strong for them. Uh, they were used to mildly uh, brewed or distilled beverages made from honey, that's mead, um, the kvass that I've just mentioned, and other things that were made um, sort of from birch sap, um, beverages like that. So they found um, aqua vitae way too strong uh, for their taste. It was commented that it might make a very good um, medicament. Um, and indeed, uh, to this day, if a child has a fever in Russia, often what a grandmother will do is rub their chest with vodka to sort of bring it down as you, we would use rubbing alcohol, um, but Russian grannies would use vodka. Um, but they, uh, so they didn't take to it right away. And shortly after that, the Russians were subjected to a very uh, long, almost 250 year uh, occupation by the Mongols in which they were sort of cut off from their traditional ties with Europe. Um, and they, they did actually drink wine, which they had brought up from Byzantium from Greece, um, but that was only the elites who would use it. But as they gradually began to sort of shuff off the Mongols, uh, they began to rediscover some of these um, some of these techniques. And of course, distilling had had gone very far in the in the ensuing centuries. And so it was during the reign of Ivan the Great in the mid 15th century, um, a, a big thing happens in that Constantinople falls to the Ottomans and the Byzantines sort of flood into Muscovy because it's a it's a center of Russian of Greek orthodoxy. And so they bring with them um, a lot of their technology. And Ivan was very canny and he realized very quickly that this aqua vitae, which gets the name vodka at some point, um, is a very interesting commodity that could be taxed. And he needed a lot of revenue because he was fighting wars on all sides. He was trying to get rid of the remainder of the Mongols to the south. And he was also fighting uh, with the Lithuanians in the north. Uh, and so began a uh, centuries-long uh, situation where uh, you have a very thirsty population uh, and a very needy government. And so you get a state monopoly of vodka, and that's still going on today. But wasn't the idea that every, people weren't necessarily into the aqua vitae? Did you have to make it but, popular well, before you could tax it? Um, I think that they began to understand um, its appeal. Um, and uh, at that point, there is a lot uh, a lot more grain being um, planted. Uh, and so it's it's much easier to distill. And it's the um, monasteries that actually start uh, distilling it uh, first. And we know that in the mid-15th century, monks at the Chudov Monastery in Moscow uh, were already making it. So uh, the Russians caught on quickly, um, as they do for many fads. Now, I understand that Dmitry um, Mendeleev, who's 
better known for the periodic table had uh, quite a bit to do with uh, with vodka. How so? He's he certainly did. I mean, he was a, a brilliant mind, a, a, an outstanding chemist, and he actually uh, defended his doctoral dissertation on uh, the subject of combining water and alcohol in 1865, I think, yeah. And that day that he defended the dissertation uh, is actually the, known as the Day of Vodka. It's vodka's birthday. Um, there are over 400 public holidays in Russia, and some of them are uh, major, like, Victory Day. Some of them are tiny, like, you know, Secretary's Day or Pencil Maker Day. Uh, But the birthday of vodka is always celebrated uh, with great aplomb. And actually, Mendeleev would go on to create the definitive recipe for vodka, the the balance of water with grain. Um, And when he served in the uh, imperial government, uh, he was director of the Bureau of Weights and Measurements. Uh, And legend says uh, that Tsar Nicholas II, the last uh, Romanov Tsar, um, right at the end of the 19th century, ordered Mendeleev to come up with this standard uh, recipe which uh, he simply rounded his dissertation number, which he had put at 38%, to a much more marketable 40%, uh, which is 80 proof. And that's the number that's still used today. And in fact, in Russia, they have a saying that um, Russians, uh, 40 degrees below Celsius isn't cold, um, 40 years old is not old, uh, but 40 degrees makes vodka great. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So now back in the Middle Ages, I understand it was uh, the spirit of the working classes. Everyone was into it. That's right, um, because um, honey was very expensive and wine was imported. And so vodka, which was made from abundant rye and the wonderful soft water of the uh, Russian rivers, was easy to make. Uh, and uh, it was cheaper to buy. Uh, but it was bought um, mostly from tavern keepers who were state employees. Now, it was, uh, we mentioned, uh, used by the grannies uh, to uh, you know, rub, uh, rub the sick children. Apparently, though, it still does have some other proper uses, like treating poison ivy exposure. You, yes. And in fact, I've seen somebody try that on skin conditions. I'm, I'm not sure it's, um, you know, universally uh, popular to do that, but I've, I've seen um, it provides sort of a soothing effect. Um, the other thing that you can take it for is you can use it as a skin tonic, as one might, you know, sort of a, a sort of cleanser or a tonic um, to clarify the skin. Um, people also, of course, use it um, when they're sick. They, they'll make a hot toddy. Um, and, of course, it is the ultimate hangover cure, <laughs> the hair of the dog. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Wow. So so apparently it removes a certain oil from the skin that causes itchiness. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Wow. All right. So, look, guys, and- if you've got a bottle of vodka sitting around at home, can you test some of these things out for us? Let us, uh, well, let us know if it works. And one of the things we should say is um, – Back in the Soviet period, when there was a lot of um, shortages of things like topical skin cream or windshield wiper, there was always vodka. And so um, I think people started to use it, as I said, much as in the way that we would use rubbing alcohol. It's just a product that is ubiquitous. It's Everybody has it. Um, so they would put it to use in ways that we might not think of, um, but they would. Uh, Jennifer Yeramayeva is with us, American historian, food writer, a former columnist for the Moscow Times, someone who I assume during your years in uh, in Russia, Jennifer, you had a lot of vodka on special occasions. 
The occasional nip. Yes. The occasional nip. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a wine drinker. Um, but uh, yeah, when I first came to Russia, uh, there there wasn't as much. I, I started living there in the 90s. Um, and so, of course, I huge sweeping changes uh, over the two decades that I lived there. So things like gin and whiskey were expensive. Um, and so we always referred to uh, a vodka tonic as a... Um, a budget gin and tonic. <laughs> what, because it was locally produced and still cheap and easy to get? Much cheaper than um, buying gin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, there were restrictions of vodka in the 16th century that led to civil unrest. This is what happens when you take vodka away from people who want it. What happened? That's right. Never, never do that. <laughs> um, this was during um, a transition time of two dynasties. You had the Rurik dynasty um, sort of die out after the reign of Ivan the Terrible. And this led to the regency of Boris Godunov, which was kind of a time of civil unrest anyway. There was the looming presence of the Polish-Lithuanians on the Western uh, border. And there was a huge kind of civil unrest. Um, and this was sort of driven by high vodka prices. Things settled down when the Romanovs came uh, to power and provided sort of continuity and it was Catherine the Great uh, who gave the nobles uh, their sort of right to distill their own vodka, which it was a perk that um, the state had had enjoyed sort of a, the monopoly. Um, and so the, the nobles were able to, to produce their own vodka. And this kind of moves us towards the late 19th century when uh, vodka becomes sort of private enterprise uh, takes over and we really have... Um, a, a focus more on quality and you get the introduction of things like bottles <laughs> and um sorry what was formula <laughs> what was vodka being delivered in prior to that barrels right okay. Barrels. <laughs> <laughs> okay so we have like uh Pyotr Smirnoff of course that name yeah. would be very well known but what so uh, there was a bit of a, a a lot of illness and death relating to all that home brewing that was going on at the time so actually trying to make cleaner safer vodka was an important health measure that's right and, and Smirnoff is a real pioneer uh, because he creates these factories where hygiene is really um a priority and of course this is the era when uh, Mendeleev is coming up with the exact formula uh and so it did go a long way but of course I, I don't think we'll ever see the back of um homebrew in Russia so what people are homebrewing vodka today still sure oh in the countryside, for sure, yeah. Right. Um, you know, not in their apartments in uh, St. Petersburg. But, yeah, I think in the countryside people are um, doing that. And, and certainly people make their own kvass and their own mead to this day. Uh, you're on Nightlife with Suzanne Hill on this Saturday night. We are taking a look at the history of vodka. We were talking rum last week. Tonight we're uh, we're looking at vodka. And I've got uh, Jennifer Yeremeyeva uh, with me, American historian, food writer, former columnist for the Moscow Times. Uh, so what impact did the 1917 revolution have on the uh, distribution and the national thirst for vodka, Jennifer? So we have to go back a little bit, Suzanne, to the First World War um, when they uh, banned the sale of all alcohol for a while. But this, of, of course, did not sit well. I don't think that the revolution did anything to curb sort of this insatiable thirst for vodka. Um, but it did turn over uh, factories like Smirnoff's, who, who had to flee the country, uh, over to the government, who nationalized everything. Um, and vodka just remained uh, a big part. There was an attempt 
to, particularly in the early period before the Second World War, to sort of curb alcoholism um, on the idea that, of course, the new Soviet communist man, you know, was not interested in in the sins of the flesh. You know, he was high. He had a higher moral compass than that. Um, but it still remained the cornerstone of of every single part of life. Um, and the government really didn't do much to curb it. And it was one of the few commodities, as as we've already spoken about, that wasn't uh, hard to get most of the time. It was is usually available. But during that period when it was banned, uh, what, what did people do, particularly people who were selling it in, in shops and bars? How did they respond when you weren't allowed to sell it? So remember that everything during the Soviet period is is owned and run by the state. So if you can't get it, uh, you would turn to your your sort of gray network of influence. You know somebody who works at a vodka factory and in exchange for theater tickets, you get a bottle of vodka. So it's kind of a barter system that exists underneath the national radar. And um, that hasn't actually gone away. Um, it's not no longer so much commodity as it is influence. When did vodka then hit the world stage? When did everybody else start drinking it? I think it was after World War II, um, but that it became very, very popular. Uh, the 1920s, uh, you know, cocktails come into fashion, um, but they're mainly, I think, gin-based. But after World War II, um, vodka is relatively cheap um, and it it becomes much more popular. Now, there has been this long-standing stereotype about Russians consuming vast quantities of the stuff, which we've kind of touched on. But wasn't there a period where uh, you know, the consumption of strong spirits was actually seriously impacting on the overall health of Russians? That's right. And it, it is it is still impacting, though less, I think, than it, than it was maybe 20 years ago. As I said, there's been a general um, move towards better health care and people paying more attention, particularly the younger generation. Um, you're also getting um, better quality uh, merchandise, though I'm, I'm not sure if that's true in the last year or so. Um, so I think there has been an improvement, but 30 years ago, the life expectancy, particularly of a man, was below 60. Um, and part of that was excessive drinking and excessive smoking. I must say, my travels, um, I've never been to Russia, but certainly through Eastern Europe, I was always stunned. You'd, you'd pull into one of those bus stops at, you know, seven or eight in the morning and the blokes would be there literally just downing spirits at that time of the That's morning. Right. So <laughs> very right. much a part of, of daily life. All right. Mm-hmm. So if you're a Russian, how do you drink your vodka? So ideally, vodka should be served, you know, very, very cold. But Russians uh, don't really care about that as much. Um, they they don't relish cold drinks. They um, always look at you very askance if you ask for ice in your um, beverage. And that's something that I fought against for, for two decades and, and sort of lost. Um, so it's served in very small shot glasses um, and it's taken neat and usually with um, a slice of black bread and something salty and briny like a pickle. Um, of course, the growing season in Russia is very short. The winters are very long. And so, of course, you had to preserve food. Um, and pickling is a great way to do that. And so 
It could be a pickled cucumber, pickled peppers, tomatoes. Usually a large platter will be served um, at a dinner party uh, during the course that um, kind of kicks things off called the zakuska, which means to have a little taste. And the zakuska is this kind of lavish spread of cold salads, salted fish, and of course this pickle platter. Um, and it's particularly it's particularly kind of good for waking up the palate, I think, um, and it you have the vodka to chase it. Uh, but I understand that part of what the, the table is all about it's it's being a, it's a visual feast as well as an actual feast. Yes, there's a um, a food writer um, uh, and her name is escaping me at the moment, but uh, she refers to it as tetrising your table because every. Uh, part of the table should be sort of heaving with dishes. And a lot of these are salted. Um, it could be uh, salted mushrooms, for example. These very gelatinous kind of mayonnaise salads are popular. Um, and they combine potatoes, um, other root vegetables, sometimes salted fish. There's a particularly unctuous one, I, I feel, that is roasted beets, herring, pickles, um, a lot of mayonnaise and then topped with chopped hard-boiled egg. And that's called herring in a fur coat. And the egg <laughs> is the fur coat. Um, but that that goes very well with vodka. Um, the other thing is the Russians aren't um, aren't really bothered about mixing the grape with the grain. And so you often find bottles of very sweet champagne on the table. Um, and that can be particularly um, hangover-inducing if you mix those two things. <laughs> but the vodka itself, it sounds like most Russians are, as you say, drinking it neat. Are people not, uh, is the younger generation not sort of uh, gravitating more towards cocktails involving vodka or very much your, your straight vodka? Well, this is this is interesting because this is something that we've seen change radically in the last um, two decades. Um, when I first started going to Russia in the 1990s, if I had been foolhardy enough to ask for a martini, um, the bartender would have reached behind him and pulled down a bottle of martini and Rossi, which is this this um, sort of liqueur that's distilled in Italy, kind of tastes like cough medicine. And that would be a martini. Um, and they had no idea what, you know, a vodka martini was, even even though they'd seen all the James Bond movies. But then sort of suddenly and seemingly overnight, cocktails became all the rage and they were doing shrubs and bitters. And, you know, they were filling cocktail glasses with all kinds of syrups and fresh herbs. And it was a it was really an overnight shift. And so the younger generation um, would probably take their vodka mixed with something, um, whereas the older generation uh, would continue to take it neat. Now, a lot of vodkas these days are flavoured or they're infused with fruits and spices. Uh -huh. Can you do that at home, buy your bottle of vodka and, and do a bit of a DIY job on it? Absolutely. You and all of the people in Australia uh, can become their own distillers. And it's really easy and it's really fun. Um, and you should do it in smaller batches um, because. Uh, infused vodka isn't going to last forever but you can basically take vodka which essentially is a blank culinary canvas and you can put any flavor onto it and um on my website there are a number of um sort of recipes for this but it's basically you take vodka you put it in a bottle and you introduce something um that will layer flavor into it um some of my favorites are horseradish um horseradish infused vodka 
makes a great Bloody Mary, for example. Um, berries can be really good. I like sea buckthorn. Um, I like to try cranberry vodka, which is, of course, essential for a cosmopolitan. Anything citrusy works really well. Um, lemon, lime, but grapefruit is probably my favorite. And then you can introduce um, any kind of herb will do very well. And particularly thyme is great and coriander. And then, of course, you can do something um, like a stewed rhubarb. If you sort of break the rhubarb down and mix it with some sugar and introduce the vodka, that with a little um, fever tree tonic is just an amazing drink in the summer. Now, how do you do this this mixing? Um, is there a special technique? Uh, no, you just um, you just uh, take the vodka, put it in a very clean bottle. The main thing is to is to be as hygienic as you can, sort of sterilize the bottle, put the vodka in, introduce the flavor, and put it in a cool, dark place in a pantry or in a cellar for about a week, uh, and then taste it and see how you like uh, the intensity of the flavor. Then remove whatever it was you uh, infused it with, um, strain the vodka through some cheesecloth, uh, and then store it in the freezer. Now, and it'll last for a month or so. Yeah. Now, Jennifer, we talked about how people were embracing it, particularly after World War II, because it was so cheap and mm-hmm. the working classes. When did those more expensive boutique vodkas start appearing on the market? Well, I think we need to go back to um, Smirnoff, and um, he, who was who was taking his vodka to international competitions. So it, it harkens back to that. But I think it's in the 1970s and 80s. And I think the lead on this is Sweden with, um, you know, they introduced absolute and that becomes kind of the standard. And then Russians try and catch up um, with producing higher quality uh, vodkas, such as Ruski Standart is, is a good example. Um, Stalichnaya is actually produced in Latvia now. The plant is there. Um, and that, that remains a, a standard, um, but it's no longer uh, Russian. So are there still a lot of big Russian companies making it for export? They are, yeah, for sure. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, not conv- I'm not seeing a lot of Russian vodka on my shelves in the U.S. Um, and, of course, again, a lot of the Scandinavian countries make excellent vodka. Um, one of my particular favourites is Iceland's Reka is excellent. All right. Uh, Jennifer uh, Yeromay, sorry, Jennifer, Yeromayeva <laughs> is with me here on Nightlight, uh, American historian, food writer, former columnist for the Moscow Times. Uh, a couple more questions and then I, we need to make sure we get your cocktail recipes. Now, I'm told mm. vodka is an impressive cleaning product. What do you use it for? Well, of course, it's a it's a wonderful cleaning product because it's a pure alcohol. Um, people in Russia a couple years ago, well, let's say several decades ago, used to take very cheap vodka and put it into their um, the container in the car for the windshield wiper. Um, because, of course, you need your windshield wipers a lot in Russia because it's such terrible weather um, and such a long winter. But you can actually um, use it to in the way that you would use vinegar um, to clean any surface that it comes in contact with food. You can use it to remove stubborn sort of sticky stains. It will dissolve dirt, grease, um, any kind of any kind of thing like that. Um, and you can also use it to clean glass and it will give you a really nice shine. I mean, you'd want to be buying the cheap stuff, wouldn't you? So that you're not <laughs> spending um, all that money. Yeah, I wouldn't, the... I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use your, your grey goose on that one, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure they sell vodka cheap enough to use as a cleaning product in Australia. No, I'm not sure they do either. Um, now, all right, Jennifer, yeah. what are your vodka cocktail recipes? Uh, share a couple. Okay, with us. I'm. I'm going to share um, one of my favorites, which I call the Dacha Garden, because I know it's summer where you are and you have lots of lovely fresh, fresh things. Uh, so you basically take um, a couple large bunches of uh, green basil and you take a lime um, and you zest it in long strips and then you juice the lime and then put some um, cucumber chunks. And I would peel the cucumber and get some spears um, of the cucumber to use. And then we'll use um, about 60 milliliters of chilled vodka and some club soda. And so you combine the basil leaves and the cucumber slices in the bottom of your cocktail shaker um, and sort of pound them, what we call muddling them. Um, and then add simple syrup, which is just a mixture of uh, sugar and water in equal portions that you boil and then cool. Uh, add the vodka, several ice cubes, shake it vigorously, very vigorously, shake it, not stirred. Uh, and pour everything into a, a highball glass and add some more um, basil and uh, cucumber spears. And that's a delightfully sort of refreshing thing. And then you top it up with the club soda. Very nice. All right. Is there another one? Or um yeah i would also the the moscow mule is wonderful with um ginger ale and in fact um it's an interesting thing uh the moscow mule was actually invented by someone who had a lot of copper mugs to sell and of course it's it's always served uh in a um in the in the copper mug simply because there was a guy who had way too many copper mugs um that he needed to sell um so the mus that's why you do it a musk mule i've actually had a musk mule in a glass and it's just as good <laughs> and one final question jennifer is it true that vodka is less likely to cause a hangover than other spirits well, Suzanne, I know you're doing a series of um, talks about spirits, so mm -hmm. I will leave your listeners um, with this um, idea. Any alcohol that you consume and the kind of hangover that uh, results from it will entirely depend on the quality of the alcohol and the quantity. So you need to moderate both. Um, but the Russians will tell you that... Um, if you have a hangover, vodka is the best cure. All right. So it's rolling, causing one, you know, all sorts of factors. But in terms of cure, like really, you just have a little nip the next day, do you? Yeah, yeah, the hair of the dog. All right. Have you have you tried this yourself? I, I tend to go for Alka-Seltzer on the uh, an odd occasion that I have a hangover. <laughs> but my husband, my husband... The other thing that Russians would use is they would mix the um, they would mix the vodka with pickle juice, and that is actually the best hangover. Oh wow! Well, there yeah, you but, are. and then if you mix those two together, it's called the day after. <laughs> I love it. Hey, Jer Jennifer, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Nightlife to talk to us about the story of vodka tonight. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Suzanne. Uh, that is Jennifer. Yeah, Remaeva. American historian, food writer, former columnist for the Moscow Times. And it's been wonderful having her with us. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.